All right. Um, so at the end of last week, or really all of last week, we were discussing uh, what is probably the most challenging philosophical uh, element of, of everything that we're doing in this class. We started the recording, right? Did you start yes. it? Okay. Uh, we, we were discussing what is uh, certainly the most challenging philosophical thing that we will discuss, the one in the many problem, right? The problem of universals in particulars. And, and what we sought to establish is that if the unbeliever cuts himself off from God, if the unbeliever, here's a key expression, makes himself the final reference point of truth, if he decides he is the ultimate source of knowledge and authority in his own life, what, what, we, what we demonstrated is he cannot bring together the things he needs to to have knowledge. Right? We said if he starts with sense experience, which is the many, the particulars, so he learns about this thing and this thing and this thing and this thing, sense experience does not allow him to make abstractions or universal judgments. Right? If he does that, and he does do that, right? Do, do unbelievers who think that they're doing things on the basis of sense experience, do they go ahead and make universal judgments? Yes, they do. But they can't do it on their professed rule for thinking, right? When they do it, they've given up the way they think they can know. And so they're inconsistent with themselves. So... The, the unbeliever who starts with sense experience can't get to universals. The unbeliever who starts with universals, and we said last week, this is a very rare bird, the guy who decides he's going to start with universals. Who did we cite as the philosopher who's best known for doing this? Plato, right? This is Platonic thought, that the ideas are really what's real and that our mind fixes on the ideas. The problem with that point of view is if I really know the ideas, right, I know the perfect triangle because I remember it back when I used to live in the world of ideas before I was birthed into the world of shadows, something like that. The problem is everything with three sides that I see isn't the perfect triangle, right? And so how do I know that the thing in my sense experience really is the thing in my mind? So, if, if I know sense experience, I can't get to universals. If I know universals, I can't get to sense experience. So the unbeliever is left in this quandary. He can't bring together... And, and so both people are left with skepticism, right? The, the empiricist doesn't know that that thing is the same as this thing. The Platonist never knows. He knows what a desk is, but he doesn't know if that's one of them. Right? And, and so he's, either way, the unbeliever, making himself the final reference point, can't bring together the things he needs to have knowledge. Right? The, the world is filled with one-in-the-many relationships. Um, it came up this last week. Uh, I was at the Mid-America Conference. Uh, and the, the topic was separation. And I, I'm not going to elaborate on this, but... Uh, what Dr. Dorn tried to argue, and, and I think he's right, is that, is that the gospel is what is most important to us as Christians, and that it is unbiblical if I treat someone who denies the gospel as if he's a Christian. 
Okay? Someone who denies the gospel, I can't treat him as a Christian. Well, and, 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 and so what about the person who, who disobeys that, who does extend Christian fellowship to the guy who denies the gospel? What do I do with him? And, 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 and part of the problem that you find is it's difficult to determine if a person's doing that. Right? We have the principle... How do I know that this guy is doing that? That's a one-in-the-many problem. Right? Life is full of one-in-the-many problems. Um, you go to the grocery store, and you know if, if you know these things, and I, I know very little, you know, you're picking out a watermelon. Right? You're picking out a watermelon. Well, what's the rule for picking out a watermelon? What do you, what do you, you, you know, something. What do you want to hear? That it's hollow. Is it possible? Um, that you thump on it and, and you get one that sounds hollow and it's not a good watermelon. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. And, and it may be that you thump on it and it sounds hollow because it is. Now that would be a shock. <laughs> you cut it open, you just got a rind. Right? The, 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 do you see how that's a one in the many problem? You have your universal law and you think it's going to apply in every circumstance, but you might be wrong. Right? Um... Or, you know, you build up at some sort of universal law on the basis of, of your experience, right? Every day, if I, if I, if I, this light turns green, and I, if I just hit this speed, I'll, I know I'll make the next light, right? And you do that for months at a time, and then they change the timings on you, right? You see how these are all one-in-the-many problems? And, and I can start on either side, and the problem is, Here's, here's the issue. If I'm the ultimate reference point and I don't know anything, or if I don't know everything, right, and I don't, that means that the mystery that exists beyond my knowledge can come in and contradict anything I know at any point. And that's a very um, sobering position to be in, right? The unbeliever making himself the final reference point never knows when the next fact is going to, is going to undermine everything he believes. Right. So, as Christians, we say, no, we can't do that. I have to have an ultimate reference point beyond me, who transcends me. And my final reference point is God. God knows all the relations of all the ones and all the many. In fact, he ordained them. Right? That's why he knows them. God didn't look at it and figure it out, they are what they are, because God said so. So, now I'm going to go over and deal with the unbeliever. I'm going to start presenting arguments for the existence of God. What I'm not going to do, then, is operate on the assumption that the unbeliever is okay as far as he goes, but he just needs to press a little further. Okay? What we're going to see in the traditional theistic proof is, is precisely evidence that, that that's what's going on. Okay? That the traditional theistic proofs, a lot of arguments for the existence of God that we're all very familiar with, that we may be even comfortable using, do exactly this. They go to the unbeliever and they say, Mr. Unbeliever, you're okay as far as you go, but you have to realize that if... if if you really understood what, what it means for cause and effect, you'd have to come to the conclusion that God exists. Okay? 
So that's actually where we're going to start. Uh, turn to the chapter on traditional theistic proofs. It's the last chapter that, that you've got there. Uh, most recent one. I, I, mine lists page 18. I don't know what page number it lists for you. Same. Okay. Page 18. Traditional theistic proofs. Big header at the top of the page. Um, and we'll skip the introduction since I basically just said that very thing. We're going to start with what are called classical theistic proofs. Let me make a distinction for you that um, is, is interesting, may not be the most uh, useful thing in the world for you, but it's probably good to know if you've had an apologetic class. I am teaching what is called, and we've talked about this before, presuppositional apologetics. Okay. There is a book that if, if you're interested, there are other views of apologetics. There's a book if you're interested in other views called Five Views on Apologetics. Five Views on Apologetics, published by Zondervan. The editor is a guy named Cohen, I believe, C-O-W-A-N. I'm almost certain that's right. I, I, I don't know if I put that one in your bibliography or not. It may be in there, it may not be. Five Views on Apologetics. Okay. Um, for what it's worth, it's, it's part of a series of books published by Zondervan called Counterpoints. And if you're interested in any theological issue, those are really helpful books to, to read. Because what they do, so for instance, the Apologetics one, brings in five different authors. And each guy, so the first guy writes and defends classical apologetics. And then the other four guys write a response to his essay. Then the second guy writes an essay defending evidentialist apologetics, and these four other four guys respond to him. So if, if you ever want to get a good overview of the arguments for premillennialism and amillennialism and post they have three views on the millennium. They have three views on the tribulation. They, they have, there's probably 40 of these views books on different issues, and they're a very helpful resource on, on a variety of theological issues. Anyway, I don't get a, I don't get a cut from Zondervan, but I'll throw that in. Five views on apologetics. Uh, the ones that are of most interest to us, uh, at least right now, classical apologetics and evidentialist apologetics. Okay, I've lumped these together in our discussions up to this point. I'm going to make a distinction right now, and then I'm going to tell you why I treat them together. Okay, the classical apologist says this. Well, let me start with the evidentialist, and then I'll that'll make more sense. The evidentialist says. The world is full of evidence for the existence of God. There's all sorts of things, right? There's historical evidence. There are these arguments for the existence of God based on logic. Um, so we have these logical arguments. We have historical arguments. We have evidential arguments. We have archaeology. We have, we have all these things. The evidentialist says, use whatever works. All right? They're all good. They're all evidence for the existence of God. It's good evidence. Go to the unbeliever. Show him the evidence that God exists. And he should, if he's rational, concede to the evidence. The classical apologist is actual, actually gets a little bit of presuppositionalism, but not quite enough. The classical apologist says this. Historical evidences for God's existence can't be used before logical arguments for God's existence. So in other words, they would say, 
the evidentialists would say, here is, here is the evidence of a miracle occurring. And that must mean that God exists. The classical apologist says, no, hold on a second. You have to show, based on certain logical arguments, that a being like God is possible. And then you can ask whether that kind of being has done something in history. Does that make sense? So classical apologist is two steps. Evidentialist apologetics is one step, if you want to think of it like that. Now, I tend to group them all together for this reason. I think all of them uh, concede autonomy to the unbeliever in their approach to apologetics. None of them, from the outset, seek to undermine the unbeliever at his, at his foundations. And so I, I honestly think they have more in common than, than keeps them apart. But when I talk about here classical, apologi or, uh, classical theistic proofs, what we're going to look at first then are these logical arguments. Um, if you think about it this way, these are arguments that we could make sitting in our, sitting in our lounge chairs. You know, I don't need evidences in front of me to make these arguments. These are the sorts, these are the sorts of arguments I can make without resorting to evidences. They're purely logical. We could sit around in the living room and argue whether these things are true and not look at anything. Okay? This, this is a classical apologetic argument. Alright, so the first one. The cosmological argument. The cosmological argument. Um, and, and this has to do with existing things must have a cause. The, the cosmos, the word, the cosmological argument isn't related to cause, even though they sound alike in English. It's more related to cosmos. If, if something exists, it must have a, a cause for, for existing. Okay? So I say here, the cosmological argument moves from the existence of cause and effect chains to the existence of God. Although different apologists formulate the argument in different ways, the basic structure looks like this. There are effects in the world, right? Now, come on, we've all got to admit, there, you know, there's things are here. We're, we're, we're here rather than not here, okay? And, and, and I can look at certain things and go, you know what? There's, there's a cause for me being here, right? You know, my parents met, so I'm here. You know, there's, there's causes for, for these things. Premise three is the big premise there cannot be an actual infinite regress of causes. So in other words, here's the argument. I'm here, I'm in effect, there must be a cause. But there had to be a cause for that. There had to be a cause for that. There had to be a cause for that. But come on, there can't be an, uh, th this can't go on forever. It has to ha start somewhere. Therefore, there, there must be some cause that is ultimate, causing all other causes, the uncaused cause, if you will, right? That causes God. Okay, this is the cosmological argument. In its ethic. In I say here, there are several problems with the cosmological argument. The first, and, and I want you to get this, does not, it does not prove anything even resembling the Christian God. Right? What, what do we know about the uncaused cause? Based on this argument. 
God's a thing. <laughs> that's about it, right? That's all we know. Um, we will find this to be a recurring theme in our examination of these proofs. Most of the classical apologetic arguments argue for, and we, we, we mentioned this concept earlier, now, now we bring it into practice. They argue for a bare theism. God, what is this? God. God, something like God. A God-like being. An uncaused cause. Uh, it should be noted, however, that the advocate of classical apologetics does not view this as a deficiency in his system. Right? Remember, the classical apologist is using the logical arguments to say what? A God-like being exists. And then he's going to go to history to show this God-like being is the Christian God. That's the two-step argument. He wants to prove bare theism and then move on. But, but I, I want us to know that there's danger in proving a bare theism. We'll, we'll see it even more, uh, I think, with the next argument. Because the, 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 the God without properties is not the Christian God. Okay, We'll, we'll see why that's going to be a problem, particularly the next one. Um, the classical apologist believes that his further arguments will narrow belief to the God of Christian theism. This particular criticism of the cosmological argument will also be true of the other rational theistic proofs. All right, we've, we've already talked about this. I, I give you a, a, a hint at why this is a problem. First sentence at the top of the next page. The uncaused cause at the end of the cosmological argument could be a pantheon of gods, right? How do we know that it wasn't eight gods who got together and caused everything else? Uh, or a rather minor, imperfect god talk about that more with the teleological argument, or perhaps an impersonal God, right? Um, Plato's God was probably impersonal. The un Aristotle's uncaused cause was an impersonal force of some sort. Um, and, and, and we run into, here's, okay, here's the problem with having an ultimately impersonal God. You still lose the ought. Does, does that make remember? We talked about the ought, the importance of ought. You don't have an ought if everything reduces to impersonality. Um, there's, a, there's a movie coming out uh, next week called Collision. Uh, it is a debate between, or a, a documentary covering a series of debates between the atheist Christopher Hitchens and a, a Christian apologist named Doug Wilson. I haven't seen it yet. I believe it's rated PG-13. Uh, I think there's some profanity in it, so this doesn't this isn't a blanket endorsement by any stretch of the imagination. Wilson is going to argue presuppositionalism, though. Okay, and uh, there's an article that both of those guys collaborated on just recently. I don't know it was in New Yorker or the Atlantic or some some magazine. His name was Dave Wilson. Doug Wilson. Doug Wilson. And then Christopher Hitchens is the atheist. And, and Wilson says something like, if, if you take a, a Coke bottle and you put it in front of some criminal act and, and you shake it up and you, you, uh, you pop the top on it and it spews out all over the place, it's not because it's angry. It's just matter in motion, right? And its impersonality is ultimate in the universe. There is no morality. There is no ought. There, and, and, and so there's no ought about beliefs. Um, 
I'll give you one last example of this. I, I took classes at Arizona State University for, for my PhD. And we had a guest lecturer come in, a guy by the name of Paul Churchland. Okay, he's a professor at uh, University of California, San Diego, philosophy professor. His wife is also, I believe, a philosophy professor at UCAL San Diego. Can you imagine living in that home? <laughs> to, to make things more interesting, both Paul and Patricia Churchland are a limitivist materialist. In other words, all that exists is matter in motion. They both believe that everything reduces to matter. And so Churchland came in and gave a, no one gives lectures anymore. You know, if, you, if you're in academics at all, no one gives lectures, we give talks. Yeah. Uh, that just seems so wimpy. Give a lecture. Anyway, he, Churchland came in and gave a talk at ASU. And the, the gist of his talk was that because all that exists is matter of motion, what philosophy should do is stop asking the questions that philosophers typically ask and start studying the brain. Because if, if, if all that exists is matter of motion, the mind doesn't exist. The brain does. Does that make sense? Now here's the problem. In the course of his lecture, he was making fun of people who disagreed with him. Okay. Big jolly man who has a, has a very uh, blunt personality, um, but he was he was mocking those who still believed in a concept of of freedom of the will or or, or whatnot. Here's the problem: given his given uh, two problems, given his world, I'll start with the lesser one and show the bigger one. Given his worldview, if my mind doesn't exist, if it's just a brain. And if it's just operating on the basis of cause and effect, if I'm wrong about something, it's a brain defect. And so his mocking me was like mocking someone who has cancer. Right? Right? Here's the bigger problem. Given his worldview, it doesn't make sense for him to try to convince me of anything. Because we're just fizzing pot bottles. It's, it, it, it's sound and fury signifying nothing. Okay. Um, all right, that was also a cosmological argument. That was a rabbit trail. Let me get back to it. Um, oh, yeah, okay. Second weakness. So the first one is that it proves a kind of a bare theism, uh, and that's going to be a problem for us. Second uh, is that point three in the above construction necessitates an arbitrary exception to its own first premises. That's fun to say, isn't it? Let me explain what I mean. Every, let me, let me bottom line the cosmological argument. Every effect needs a cause, except my cause. And, and um, I mentioned to you at the beginning of class the Bonson-Stein debate on the existence of God. Uh, again, I can't recommend listening to that enough. Okay? The Bonson-Stein debate on the existence of God. Uh, normally when I teach apologetics, that's part of the class, but we just don't have time. It would take me three hours to get through it with the annotated uh, lecture. Please listen to it. What's fascinating about that lecture, or that debate, Bonson gives his opening statement, and then Stein comes up as the atheist, and he goes through a catalog of about... 14, 15, arguments for the existence of God, and he shreds them. 
And here's the fun part. As a theist, I think he's right about how he shreds just about every one of them. Okay? So he starts with the cosmological argument. Uh, everything, every effect needs a cause, and that cause is God. Well, God, certainly God is, is even bigger and more wonderful than the world, and if the, if the world is a less significant thing needs a cause, then God would need a cause. Right? But you tell me God doesn't need a cause. Well, given that, I would think a, a relatively more insignificant thing like the universe wouldn't need a cause either. Do you, do you see how? Here's, here's the issue. Okay? The cosmological argument assumes that I can go over to the unbeliever's worldview and latch onto this concept of causation as common ground. But do you see it's not common ground? Either... I, I latch on to the unbeliever's understanding of causation, at which point I can't get to God. Or, or however well-intentioned I am, I'm actually lying at the outset. Because my idea of causation is the sort of causation that God's exempted from. And the unbeliever doesn't buy that. And so I'm pretending that there's agreement when there's really not. Does that make sense? And this is the problem with, the, with, with these arguments. It's, it's, it's what we call equivocation, right? Um, and, and you'll see this in political debates. You have two guys arguing, and then one guy says, well, we could both agree on this. And it, you know, it's some, you know, well, we're both, you know, here's, we're both conservatives here. Well, well, here's the problem. What that word means to one guy and what that word means to another guy may be two radically different things. And to pretend there's agreement is what we call equivocation. They're using the same word, but they're using it two different ways. The cosmological argument is, in, is in, as it's typically formulated, I think is an evidence of equivocation. I'm going to the unbeliever and pretending that we agree about what causation is. Do you see the unbeliever on a materialist worldview has a certain idea of causation? Um, and his idea of causation doesn't allow for God. You know, it may allow for a big, big bang. It may allow for an infinite regress. Okay, the whole idea of can there be actual infinite is... Okay, you want to go into some crazy philosophy? <laughs> can actual infinites exist? There's a, there's a uh, story. I'm not going to camp here. Uh, Hilbert's Hotel, if you want to look it up. So you have a hotel. This is, this is a little thought experiment. Hotel with infinite rooms. And they're all full. And the guest comes up to the table and he says, or comes up to the counter and says, can I get a room? And the, and the proprietor says, what? No. He says, yes. He takes the guy in room two and he moves him into room three. The guy in room three moves into room four, so on and so forth, and puts the new guy in room one. So a hotel with infinite rooms can be completely full and take on a new guest. Okay, so now you're, things start getting busy. A line forms at the counter that has an infinite number of people in it. And they all want to check in at the same time. Can they all check in when all the rooms are full? Yeah, they can. All you have to do, all you have to do, is tell the guy you multiply now by two. So the guy in room one moves to room two. The guy in room two moves to room four. Three moves to six. So all the even rooms are full. All the odds are empty, and you move an infinite number of people in. Um. It's now, <laughs> it, what it's intended to show 
William Lane Craig, Craig is, is one of the guys who writes in the Five Views book, defending classical apologetics. Okay? William Lane Craig is, is probably the best known advocate of the cosmological argument. And he puts a lot of stock in illustrations like this to show that actual infinites can't exist because they're absurd. It's debatable whether he proves his point or not, but they are fun to think about. Anyway, uh, let's, let's continue. Um, so I say, uh, let's, let's jump to the next paragraph. Thus, the entire argument is based on, a, on an equivocation about the nature of causation. Geisler's discussion, Norm Geisler, um, he's another well-known apologist. Geisler is also going to be a classical apologist, Norm Geisler. Uh, Geisler's discussion of causality illustrates this problem. Okay, this is a quote from Geisler's book, Christian Apologetics. The criticism, if everything needs a cause, then there must be an infinite regress, is built on a misconception of the principle of causality. Or better, it is a confusion of the principle of existential causality and the principle of sufficient reason. Follow along, it gets clear. The latter affirms that everything needs a cause. This, it would seem, as the atheists observe, leads to a contradiction of God being his own cause. But not all theists use this approach. Aquinas, for example, held that only finite, changing, dependent beings need a cause. On a materialist universe, what are the only sorts of things that exist? Finite, changing beings. To say, well, God doesn't need a cause because he's not the sort of being that can exist in your universe, do you, you, you see how that exposes the equivocation going on there? In an atheist universe, can God exist? Can a being like God exist? No. So to say, okay, we all believe in a principle of causation. You believe in a principle of causation that everything needs a cause. I believe in a principle of causation that there's one big exception. But we agree. I mean, really, except for the God thing that I'm trying to prove. Do you see what Geisler's doing here? He's, he's trying to smuggle God in. And God is a very big thing to try to smuggle into a debate. Um, this does not lead to a contradictory self-caused being, but a non-contradictory uncaused being. For if only finite beings need a cause, then when one arrives at a non-finite, infinite being, uh, it does not need a cause. So, do you see how I, I, this whole argument plays with things? I go to the unbeliever who only believes in finite things, and we say, look, everything needs a cause, unless you would get to something infinite, which is the very thing that his worldview doesn't allow at the outset. I mean, he might agree with you, but he would say, okay, but that's a, different, that's a totally different thing of causation. We don't agree. The equivocation here is apparent. Geisler wants to grant the notion of causation to, a, to the believer, but in order to get to his uncaused cause, he, it has to be the sort of causation that allows for the existence of non-finite beings. This is, of course, simply not acceptable to the naturalistic unbeliever. Thus, they are operating on two different notions of causation, and it is a fallacy for the believer to suggest that the unbeliever's notion of causation proves the existence of God. Right? The unbeliever's notion of causation doesn't. 
but I'm going to argue the unbeliever's notion of causation is incoherent. I can't go from it and get to God, but I can show that if he wants to believe in causation at all, he has to presuppose God. Okay, this is going to be the difference between traditional arguments and transcendental. Teleological argument. This is a very, very popular one these days because uh, this, this would be very strongly associated with the intelligent design movement. Okay? Teleology doesn't strictly mean design, though this is how it's most often used. Teleology has to do with purpose. Okay? So the argument is that the world around us gives evidence of purpose. So, so here's, here's the idea. Um, if, I, if I find a rock on the seashore, I don't assume it's there for a reason. Right? It, there's nothing about it that seems that way to do something. But if I find a watch, this is a classic argument, uh, Paley's uh, argument here. If I find a watch on the seashore, it seems to, seems to be for a purpose. It, it, you see how it's very closely related to it seems to be designed. It seems to be for a purpose, therefore that seems to necessitate a designer. So this is, we could call it the design argument, but just know, really, teleology has to do with purpose, and design is a corollary of that. Um, all right, begins with observation of design in nature, uh, or uh, observation of purpose. You know, it seems that life has a purpose, you know, something along those lines. Uh, so here's the argument. The natural world exhibits intricate design. Things that exhibit design require a designer. That designer is God. Okay, really straightforward. And, I'll, I'll add, very potent, right? This is, a, this is a strong argument in terms of its ability to persuade. Um, and I'm, I'll, I'll show why, how an argument like this can be used, but let's talk about the problems first. The teleological argument suffers many of the same weaknesses of the cosmological argument. In our experience, Things that exhibit design normally have a designer who is even more intricately designed, right? Um, what exhibits more design, the watch or the watchmaker? The watchmaker. For example, while a watch demonstrates fine design, its design pales in comparison to the design evident in the watchmaker. One would be rational to surmise then that the designer of the universe demonstrates even more intricate design than the universe. It is easy to see the infinite regress of design that such an argument necessitates, right? Who designed God? Well, God doesn't need a designer. Well, why does the universe need a designer then? Why can't I cut it off one step earlier? Uh, again, if one wants to contend that God is such a being that needs no designer, there needs to be some good reason that such a contention is not merely ad hoc. You know, I'm just not making this up. Just, ha, this is convenient for my position. It follows that the teleological argument also relies on equivocation about the existence of design in the same way that the cosmological argument equivocates on causation. Um, I thought I added something here. Do you have more under the teleological argument there? Yeah, furthermore, furthermore. Yeah, oddly, that's not in the notes that are sitting in front of me. Um, you know, I think I know where Copy? it is. Yeah, I, I think I know where it is. I can pop this open uh, in a hurry. Sorry about that. Don't like delaying things. Yeah, technology and a grant. I got it right here. You got it? I'm good. Yep. Um, 
Furthermore, aha, it is not a given that the unbeliever should acknowledge the existence of design in the world. So let me go extemporaneous here. So watch me. We have a hat. It's a big hat. Really big hat. And we've got all sorts of slips of paper in it. Numbers. Numbered sequentially. Uh, billions and billions of slips of paper. Paper cuts waiting to happen, right? And I reach my hand way down in there, and I pull out a big, long slip of paper. And from end to end, it's just one. And I go, that is crazy. I mean, look at, look at the order in that, in that sequence of one. I mean, what are the odds that I would pull that? And what's the answer? One in however many slips of paper are in the hat. Just as likely as any other slip of paper in the hat. Is there design in all the ones? Really? Not really. It would appear there is. It seems, I impose, I, I, I pretend there's order in it. There seems to be order to me, but really, it, I pulled the number at random. The unbelief, so you'll see this, right? The creation scientist will say the odds that, you know, a, a single cell of life could emerge from, you know, all this are one in, you know, billions and billions and billions and billions and billions. And that's just so unlikely it could never happen. But what if it did? Can you pull that one number out of that? You can. And, and here's the issue the, the unbeliever. Is he impartial about the existence of God? The unbeliever. Impartial about God? No, he hates God. So if you give him one in billions and billions and billions, is he going to take billions and billions and billions, or is he going to take one? He's going to take one. And you know what? He can be rational in doing so on his own worldview. You, you see the big problem there. Now, you, you may say, hey, that's ridiculous, and you may be right, but you've given him just enough ground to stand on. I'm not opposed to creation science, and I think some of the data that they give us is very interesting, but it does not play the role of a convincing proof that God must exist. Does that make sense? Some sort of teleology then? So, the, the unbeliever... If the unbeliever is consistent and he says everything's just random and we happen to get lucky, right? Someone wins the lottery, looks like it was us. We won the genetic evolutionary lottery. You know, there's billions of planets in the solar system. Odds are life was going to show up on one of them. The fact that it showed up on our planet doesn't mean that we're, we, we have meaning. It just means we're the accident. We're the oddball in the universe, but we, we, we're here, so we can't deny it. We pulled this number. Just like I pulled ones from end to end, doesn't show its design. And, it, it, would it be fair to say it's more convincing that he exists than he doesn't exist, but it's still not totally convincing? Yeah, I, yeah, I, I think that's fair. Yeah. I, think, I think his position is, but, but there's all sorts of things that we believe. You know, if, you know, if you knew the guy, right, we're, we're, we're Christians here, we knew the guy who won the lottery, right, we didn't win, but we knew the guy. Is it rational to believe that your friend won the lottery? And the question is, it's rational if 
He did win the lottery. But it's just really, uh, I mean, you, you, even, even on a human level, what are the odds, genetically, that you ended up as you? You ever think about that? It messes with your head if you think about it long enough. That, that you know, the, the number of people that had to meet for you to end up being you, you know, that it had to be that particular combination of sperm and egg that time for you to be you. I mean, the odds against you being you are enormous. But it's not irrational for me to believe that you're you. You know, I, you know, you walk up and you're like, hi, I'm Bill. And I'm like, I'm not behind that. You know, the odds against you existing are so enormous, it would be crazy for me to believe you. And the unbeliever is going to say the same thing about his own existence. Right? Well, the odds against us existing are astounding, but we're here. And he's rational to come to that conclusion if you grant him that on his worldview. And that's why we're going to try to undermine his worldview rather than grant him that. Okay. Pascal's wager. Pascal's wager. This is a fun one. It, um, summary by Geisler here. Pascal was a, a French theologian philosopher. Geisler summarizes it. From the standpoint of reason, faith in God is a bet in which the purely rational odds are about even. In other words, We'll be agnostic here. 50-50 shot. God exists, God doesn't. Right? That's what he means by the rational odds are about even. Maybe God exists, maybe he doesn't. But in which the existential dice are heavily loaded in favor of faith. Uh, so here's, here's the... Let me, let me interpret that. Uh, Pascal's wager says this. Uh, maybe God exists, maybe he doesn't. Okay? So uh, let's say... You believe in God, and God does exist. What do you get? Heaven. Okay. Let's say you believe in God, and God doesn't exist. Me, you know, whatever. Okay. Let's say you don't believe in God, and God doesn't exist. Me, whatever. Let's say you don't believe in God, and God does exist. You get hell. Okay? So, if, if the other two kind of cancel each other out, the two means, right? If, if, if you got a shot at heaven, and the consequence of the other one is you're going to end up in hell, man, it just makes sense. Whether, whether it's true or not, you might as well believe in God. Okay, that's Pascal's wager. That's Pascal's wager. Anyone familiar with this argument? Okay? It's a fairly common argument. Pascal then urges the unbeliever to accept belief because the rewards of belief highly outweigh the rewards of unbelief. And the penalties for unbelief highly outweigh the penalties for belief. Uh, Geisler is right to classify this argument as a type of fideism. Okay, this is a term you need to know. Fideism. Fideism. Uh, fideism um, is... I'm, I'm, I'm losing that term. What's it? Fideism means Belief in God is not rational. It's something you just leap to. Okay. Fideism basically says, listen, Christianity, belief, 
not rational. But, you know, I can't defend it. I can't show you that it's true. But you should just believe. You see how that's, that's irrational? Okay. Um, Pascal's wager is a sort of fideism, right? Is Pascal arguing that Christianity is true? Did you, did you see the word in there? F-I-D-E-I-S-M? To classify this argument as a type of fideism? Um, Pascal, is Pascal arguing that Christianity is true? No, he's just arguing, hey, just believe it. Right? It's fideism. Okay? And, and we're going to show that fideism is a problem. Right? Fideism, again, leaves the unbeliever with an excuse. Is Christianity true? Is Christianity not? Eh, you know, who knows? But, well, no, we're not going to go that way. Okay, we want to show that Christianity is true. Is Pascal a born-again Christian, or is he a theologian? He is. He's, I, I never he met him. I mean, there's a lot of theologians like right. God, right? Hun hundreds of years before I existed, Pascal roamed the earth. Huh? Uh, so I've never met him. It, sure. From his writings, he says a lot of things that are good. Yeah. Uh... It, it, but it's, it would be hard to give you a definite answer. It would be hard to give you a definite answer. And I'll be, it'll be very forthright with you. I haven't read enough Pascal firsthand to, okay. to even uh, claim to give you an authoritative answer. Um, it's a good question. Pascal is not making an argument that belief in Christianity is more rational. Uh, he is merely asserting that it's more pragmatic. Number of arguments. There are a number of problems with this argument. In Pascal's day, okay, again, do back 500 years. If you believe in God, what God did you believe in? In Pascal's Europe, the, the Christian God, loosely loosely spoken of, right? We're talking about the God of the Bible, the God of the Old and New Testaments. In our day, if you say, "Hey, it'd be better to believe in God than not believe in God," what are, what are the options that are open to people? Okay, a bunch. And here's the problem: once you open it up to a bunch of different gods, the odds change. Pretty radically, right? Because if I just choose to believe in a God and I get the wrong one, how many gods have there been in human history? What are my odds of getting the wrong one then? Almost certain, right? And so Pascal's wager works if there's two options, unbelief and Christianity. But in our day, in which there are dozens and dozens of live options for people, Shintoism and Buddhism and Hinduism and Islam and and uh, Wicca, and, you know, I mean, you, you could keep going, right? Um, the argument loses its existential force because, it, because the whole idea is, it's not arguing that Christianity is true, it's arguing that you should just choose Christianity. Well, Christianity is one of 12 options. The odds that you're right, or, or here's the bigger problem, the odds that you'll be damned by Allah throw the whole thing off. About when Paul went into Athens, and they they're up telling him all about all he's walking around. He sees mm -hmm. all these different gods, and then he comes in and says, "The unknown God that you have here." But but then he says, "The God who made heaven and earth," and he starts to define God. Mm -hmm. So he's not leaving it. He's not he's not saying, um, "I believe in an unknown God." Right. So he, he's using it as a starting point. We'll actually talk about Act 17, or um, yeah, Act 17, uh, as the class goes on. 
but it, uh, he's not he's not using it as hey just embrace the unknown God, which is what Pascal's kind of wanting us to do here. Um, all right, I, I actually think there's another even bigger problem with Pascal's wager. Um, Pascal says, and I want you to just this is this is more me preaching than me uh, lecturing. Pascal says. If you believe in God and God doesn't exist, what did we what conclusion we come to? Me? What did Paul say? If I believe and there's no resurrection? We're of all men most miserable, most to be pitied. Pascal's wager only works if Christianity doesn't cost you anything. And if Christianity doesn't cost you anything, Paul says it's not real Christianity. Um, and and so I think I think Pascal's wager is actually not so much an attack on the unbeliever as it is damning of a certain kind of Christianity. But that's me preaching. The argument for morality. Okay. So here's another argument. People have moral values all over the world, right? Uh, I mentioned in there, I'm going to be brief here. I mentioned uh, C.S. Lewis in his uh, book, was it Men with, or uh, the Abolition of Man? Yeah, Abolition of Man. He talks about this how. Okay, uh, Lewis wasn't a Taoist, he just uses that word, and he uses the word Tao to signify the sort of moral rules that all cultures have, right? You go from culture to culture, and there are, there are numbers of rules that all cultures, just about, without exception, have, right? You can't kill, you should honor your parents, you know, you, wherever you go all over the world, people have moral values, there must be a moral lawgiver then who implanted those laws in people. Okay, this is the, the argument from morality. What's the problem with this argument? Can anyone, can anyone guess? There are immoral people. There are immoral people. In fact, there are immoral cultures, right? There are some cultures that have said certain things are okay. Um, you, know, there, it, you know, sociologists have a field day with that, but there are some... Uh, some people groups in the world in which a very clever deception is looked at as a virtue, right? And and so the the idea that moral values in all people everywhere the evidence breaks down. Do you see how at this point I'm appealing to you know something out there showing that God must exist? Um, the evidence doesn't support it. The evidence is conflicting, right? All people everywhere don't have the same moral values. So what does that prove? There's a bunch of different gods with conflicting moral values. You see, the evidence doesn't get me far enough. It doesn't get me to the conclusion that I want to get to. Um, and I mentioned there that other people have tried to account for moral codes merely on an evolutionary basis that morality evolved because it helped us live together and we found that living together helped our survival and if we're, if we're going to live together we've got to develop certain rules, right? If we're going to live together I need to know that you're not going to kill me, I'm not going to kill you, right? It's going to help with us if we live together or else we don't live together if one of us kills the other. You know, I need to know you're not going to steal my stuff. Um, the, the argument for respecting your elders, well, here's the problem with, with humans as opposed to most other animals. How long does it take before a human animal is self-sufficient? Long. 
long time. And what, what is that long time used for? Growing and, and what? And, and, and what do we, what are, what are the tools we use to help this person mature? We teach him, right? You know, again, it, we don't consider someone uh, fit for survival as a human just because they can eat, right? They need to be able to talk and communicate and all these other things. Well, uh, Dawkins, for instance, Richard Dawkins, uh, argues that uh, believing our elders is an evolutionary adaptation because we're so dependent on needing to learn as young things. Okay, so the argument is that these moral values are really just evolutionary adaptations. Again, if we're just looking at the evidence out there and trying to come up with a naturalistic explanation for it, that works as good as yours. Okay, and again, well, I'll, we've already uh, given a bit of a transcendental moral argument. I want you to note the difference here. Okay, we'll. we'll we may end up camp or, uh, stopping here. I'd like you a little bit further, but let's, let's illustrate here. The traditional argument is, look all around us. People have the same moral values. It must show that there's a lawgiver. And we say, ah, eh, no, don't buy it. Right? There's different moral values. Some people don't seem to have any moral values. Um, it, it doesn't, this doesn't prove anything like the Christian God. A transcendental moral argument. I, as a Christian, go to the unbeliever and I say, you know, or at least you believe, certain things are wrong. Account for that on your worldview. See, because here, now, now, he's going to be the evolutionist. And he says, well, moral values evolved. Does that mean, does that mean it's wrong for me to hit him? If, if moral values are an evolutionary adaptation for us to survive in communities. Is it immoral for me to punch him in the face? No, because you can you can make the argument that um, that you can mold evolution in a different direction. I, it's, it's even simpler than that. I agree with you. What evolution has done has done has done carries with it no ought. Does that make sense? In, in other words, if, if things would have evolved differently, uh, is that wrong? No. There's no ought in evolution. The fact that we've adapted certain cultural conventions... I'll give you an example of this. Is it wrong to drive on the left. Do you see how that's not evil in itself? No. Now, it's against the law here. We've adopted a convention, right? In terms of us living together, it's going to be easier if we all drive on the right or in other places, if we all drive on the left. If we decide, you know, occasionally you see someone driving on the wrong side of the road and we get very upset at him, but we don't say driving on the left is an immoral act in and of itself, right? It is immoral because we're supposed to obey government and things along those lines, but it is not it's not like you wicked left side of the road driver, you know, you go over to England and just chew people out randomly. What are you thinking, you nation of reprobate heathens driving on the left, 
Right? We don't do that because we recognize cultural conventions don't make morality. Does that make sense? Cultural conventions can be very powerful. Right? I don't want people driving on the left around here. But it's not immoral. There's no ought in cultural conventions. And so the, the unbeliever who says morality just involved in our society, if I haul back and just sock him in the face, he has no right to say that I have no right to do that. Now, is it wrong for me to punch him in the nose? Does he know it? But his worldview won't account for it. So if I do this at work, I'm not saying it's going to be my lawyer. No. no. Come on. No. You can argue that in the Supreme Court. That's right. I'm going to use presuppositional arguments. I'll punch you my lawyer. Do you see the difference between saying there's morality out there, therefore God, and saying you, Mr. Unbeliever, know there's morality. It, you can't escape it. In fact, you're talking to me presupposes an ought. Does, does that make sense? When the unbeliever opens his mouth, when Paul Churchland gets up in front of that class at ASU and says, whatever he says, what does he want us to do? Agree with him. There's an ought there. Does his worldview allow for ought? When he opens up his mouth, he refutes his position. That's a transcendental argument. I, I don't have to go to anything outside him. I can just show that his own worldview doesn't account for what he thinks is true. Okay? That's the power of a transcendental argument. I'm taking what he assumes and showing that his worldview doesn't account for it. I'm not going and saying, listen, we're all on the same plane here. Let's look at the morality that's out there. I'm not going to get anywhere with that. I'm not going to get anywhere with that. Because I've conceded to him already enough ground for me to lose. What I want to show is he can't, he can't prove anything. Right? Uh, I have there Lewis's argument from Joy. Feel free to just read that. Uh, it, it, I think it's interesting. Uh, if, you've, if you've ever read Lewis is surprised by Joy, this concept is, is big for Lewis. But th it's not a... It's not a uh, popular argument, so it's not one that we really have to cover. Argument from the universality of religious practice on the next page. Very, very similar to the moral argument. People everywhere are religious, therefore there must be a God. Again, I think it's true. Here's the, okay, let me, let me say this. Cosmological argument. Is it true that God caused everything? Is it true that God designed everything? Teleological argument. Is it true that God is the reason that there's moral values in people? Yes. Is it true that because man is created in God's image, man is incurably religious? Yes. But I can't start there on an unbelieving worldview and get to God. See, the reason we look at these arguments and we go, oh, these are really convincing, is that we already assume the worldview in which they make sense. The unbeliever doesn't. And, and that's where the clash comes in. What I want to do is instead of, instead of patching over the clash, I want to make it as sharp as possible. I want to accentuate the differences. And, and, and instead of saying, hey, listen, we both agree about causation, I want to say, Mr. Unbeliever, you can't even have causation on your worldview. Um, you have to come to my worldview to get that. You, you, you know there's causation. You know there's design. You know that there's purpose. You, you, you are convinced your life has meaning. 
that it's not all just found in you. You know you're not a fizzing pop on. Right? Uh, but on your worldview, you're a fizzing pop on. Come on over to my worldview. It's better here. Right? Make sense? Question. When you were going over Pascal, it's like some preachers will talk about hell a lot. Mm -hmm. and kind of remind me of that a little bit. And I think there's a place for that. I think there's a place for that. Um, you know, Jesus didn't. Jesus threatened people with hell. Okay. Uh, where the worm dies not and the fire is not quenched. I mean, that's Jesus' language, and we can't be more holy than Scripture on this. Uh, and so there is a, an existential imperative. You know, you must take action on this. Where, where Pascal is very interesting is that you. He will not let us be neutral on this question about God, right? What, what Pascal is saying is the, the consequences are so enormous, you've got to make a decision. And, and that, I think, is true. It's not an argument. And that's, you know, again, to, 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 to threaten someone into salvation shouldn't be confused with arguing someone with someone. And that's, that's where I think some of the problems can be. And it can be just purely emotive. Well, I'm, I'm thinking that with that, if, if the idea is that um, you should go with belief because... It's the best chance for a good life. Yeah. That's not the biblical description of belief. Yeah. That's, that's more like somebody playing church, playing... Well, it, it, gets very, it gets very interesting. <laughs> um, and and, and I'll, I'll play both sides here. Scripture does promise reward. And, and, and we can't, again, we can't be more spiritual than Scripture here. Jesus says, whenever you sacrifice for, for my sake, you'll receive a hundredfold in the kingdom. Right? That's Jesus' language. And I can't say, well, you know, someone who looks at that and takes it seriously, you're just a mercenary. No, Jesus doesn't, Jesus doesn't tempt us with things that we're not supposed to want. Okay? At the same time, uh, what, what, Pascal ends up doing, he says, okay, so you've got someone who says, okay, Pascal, I see what you're saying. I, it's better for me long-term to believe in God than to not believe in God, but I find it hard to believe in God. right? I, because, Pascal, you haven't given me any rational reasons. You've just said, I ought to do it. How do you, how do you make yourself believe in God? Pascal says, well, go to church, you know, and, and, and you know, take the Mass. And, you know, he's obviously going to take Pretend like you're a Christian. You'll find that belief will come. <laughs> I got some issues with that. And so I, I think you put your finger on a, a big problem. The irrationality of Pascal's argument um, causes someone to try to will belief. And willing belief, trying to will yourself to believe something is not a real easy thing to do. All right? Fairly well. Come back next week.